Stacy Schiff says the American patriot Samuel Adams was the patron saint of late bloomers. He was born into privilege, Schiff says in a new book, but he was a perfect failure until his 40s. That's when he took up the cause of revolution. And this was the thing he was really good at, at muscling words into deeds, as Schiff puts it. She says, Adams had this gut feeling for knowing what righteous anger could accomplish, and he knew the right thing to say that would keep the colonists outraged and determined to keep fighting. But Adams didn't really care about his legacy. He covered his tracks, so it wasn't easy for Schiff to write a biography of Samuel Adams, but that is what she's done. And today in Radio West, she'll join us to talk about the man who supplied the moral backbone for the American Revolution. Join us after this. Here's an easy way to boost your monthly gift to KUER. Switch to a direct donation from your bank account. Your support won't be interrupted due to lost cards or expiration dates. And when you do switch, you'll help KUER save thousands of dollars each year by offsetting steep processing fees. Most importantly, you're strengthening your support of the essential local news and NPR programming you depend on. Make the switch today at KUER.org slash membership. Okay, here's a question. Who led the campaign for American independence? You're thinking George Washington, but I don't mean the physical fight. I mean the campaign of civil resistance. This is the words part. The one who worked out the strategy of indignation, how you would whip up a crowd and fuel the sentiments of patriotism. The writer Stacey Schiff says it's Samuel Adams. And the reason you may not know that, most Americans don't know it in fact, is because she says he was just really good at keeping a low profile. In a new biography, Schiff says Samuel Adams operated by stealth. He knew how to keep a secret and he didn't really worry about getting the credit. But if things had gone differently, Schiff says Samuel Adams would have been the first one to go to the gallows. We may not know that much about him, but the British did. I think when it comes to the revolution, there are certain set pieces which are familiar to us all, whether it's the hurling of tea into Boston Harbor or whether it's Paul Revere flying through the countryside. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. Sometimes it can be difficult for the writer of nonfiction to have to write about some of those incidents that are so deeply buried in our minds because we already have an image of them with which, of course, the writer is then running competition of some kind. But in the case of Paul Revere's ride, I felt that we all have, for better or worse, a very colorful image of Revere flying through the night on his horse, a horse of a color that no one has ever known, although various writers have ascribed different descriptions to it. A hurry of hoofs in a village street, a shape in the moonlight, a bulk in the dark, and beneath from the pebbles in passing, a spark struck out by a steed flying fearless and fleet. That was all. But none of us stops to ponder the question of where precisely Paul Revere is going. It was two by the village clock when he came to the bridge in Concord Town. He heard the bleating of the flock and the twitter of birds. His destination is generally understood just to be to declare that the British are coming. So I felt I was up against this hardwired moment. And the interesting part is that where Paul Revere is actually heading at top speed that night on that borrowed horse was to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock of imminent arrest if not outright assassination, as it was said at the time. In the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. So the very fact that Revere is racing to the countryside to warn the most wanted man in America, in this case Samuel Adams, of what he assumes to be his plight, and that that has been lost to us seemed to me like the proper place to start the book. It both takes a moment that we think of as, you know, deeply important to America's origins, and it turns that moment on its head a little bit. 
This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Stacy Schiff is with us this hour. Her book is called The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams. Now, most of you know Schiff's work for Cleopatra or these other American stories, the biography of Benjamin Franklin, a book about the Salem witch trials. In fact, she told us her book on Samuel Adams actually falls into a continuum of those other stories from the country's Puritan beginnings through the Enlightenment. This book really, in a great way, fell out of The Witches, a book I did on the Salem Witch Trials, in that when you come to the end of 1692, the year of the epidemic of witchcraft, you begin to see people very slowly, anonymously, very in a very gingerly fashion, speaking out against the witchcraft court, which was a very dangerous thing to do because generally if you spoke out against either witchcraft or the court that was prosecuting cases of witchcraft, you were generally rewarded with an accusation of witchcraft yourself. And I was thinking a lot about what it took for those first very brave people to stand up and actually cast some doubt on this miscarriage of justice. And that took me in a sort of roundabout way to Samuel Adams, who was kind of buried deep in a book I had done earlier on Benjamin Franklin and his years in France. And there was Adams having made a cameo appearance in that book without my having really thought too much about him. And so I went back to begin to look into Adams a bit more and was astounded by how much his contemporaries universally point to him as the most important man of the revolution. He's either the father of liberty or he's the apostle of liberty or he's the father of the revolution or in Thomas Jefferson's words, he's the most, the earliest, the most active, the most persevering man of the revolution. And yet he's lost from sight to us. Mm. And he also connects in many ways. I, mean, I was trying to think, you know, how do you get from those benighted years in Salem at a time when there were no newspapers in, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony to yeah. the enlightenment of enlightenment years of Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. You know, what, what comes in between? How did that shift in thinking take place? So, and so this period in particular, and Adams specifically as well, seemed as if it were in a way the missing link. And part of mm -hmm. that isn't, isn't only Adams, it's, it's the colony as a whole, taking these ideas, really sort of unbraiding um, religious ideas and rebraiding them into more secular ideas which is to say sort of pulling the, the idea of republicanism out of some very fundamental tenets of Puritanism. And Adams, because he is a man of deep faith and a man who was deeply grounded in his faith, um, seemed to me kind of a perfect example of that. So those were, in a kind of roundabout way, those were the strands that all sort of led back toward, those are the roots that led back to Adams. You mentioned in the book how Adams manages to bob and weave and stay out of sight. Um, and what remains is kind of like this vapor trail, as how you describe it. But you also talk about how in some ways – and we can discuss how it was to create a book, which um, which was a challenge because there, he, you know, he, he burned a lot. He tore up a lot of documents, which seems crazy. But, but you also talk about how this absence – his absence from the story tells us a great deal. Talk a little bit about that if you would. Sure. And and to your point of burning up the documents and, and as we know, littering them out the windows in small pieces, it isn't crazy when you think about what he's doing in the sense that here he is fomenting, rebe fomenting revolution. So sure. you really do want to cover your trail, which is, alas for us, what he was largely doing. It probably isn't the wisest thing when you pick a biographical subject to pick someone who was temperamentally very modest and who tended toward um who basically tended to to shy away from the spotlight and remain in the wings and who preferred to work by committee but all three of those describe samuel adams and indeed that is what makes him so colossally difficult to write about he always shares credit he doesn't only share credit where it's important to share credit because you want responsibility to be diffused because of course you might prove to be the most wanted man in america but he mm. shares credit across the board and for the same reasons that he tends to creep toward the creep backstage and creep away from the spotlight, he later refuses to collect his papers after the revolution. His cousin John will several times encourage him to collect his papers and say that, you know, history is going to want to read these decades worth of writings, which really explain the American Revolution. 
And John warned Samuel Adams that he shouldn't leave the heroics to others to write about. And very characteristically, Samuel Adams ignores um, those requests. He doesn't, he doesn't create any kind of monument to himself. So, I mean, a lot of this is of necessity because of what he's doing is obviously dangerous, but much of this is also temperamental. He's just an immensely diffident man, which I, I find highly appealing, but he really does tend to play a role behind the scenes. So he doesn't really, as you say, find his footing until he's 41. So let's talk about 1764. What is the condition of the relationship between the colonies and Great Britain as he starts to get engaged in this enterprise? What does he see in New England and the other colonies? Is he thinking rebellion at this point? Is he just thinking reform Resistance. This seems to be a central idea here, him trying to decide what is this thing that we're that we should be doing as as, as a colony here, I guess. There have been some early clashes, I guess you would say, between colony and mother country, some early attempts to kind of settle what the relationship really is, how to codify really relationship between colonies and mother country, where does parliament's authority begin and end, but nothing on any scale that would begin to approximate 1764, 1765, when the Sugar and Stamp Acts are passed. Right. So I guess the real answer to your question is that until that point, except for those, those smaller clashes, there's just really an understanding that you know certain kinks in the system need to be ironed out. Massachusetts in particular is having a really tough time economically. And Adams has been asking himself where one's responsibility to the king lies if the king tramples the rights of his subjects. His feeling is that the prerogatives of power and the rights of the people should remain in perfect balance. But there's no reason really to think about that on any larger scale until the early 1760s. And yes, for many, many years after that as well, the question is not rebellion. The question is not even really necessarily resistance. The question is redress, how, how to ease the relationship, how to ease the tense relationship between colonies and mother country. So he doesn't really amount to much until he's, well, he doesn't amount to much, you know, as, as far as fortune goes anyway, but until he's 41, he, you describe him as downwardly mobile, uh, the patron saint of late bloomers. Um, so when does he find his purpose. One of the things you mentioned is one of his first employers, I think, says all he can think about is politics. So what are the ideas that he's thinking about? What are they informed by? Like what's his source material at school? Is this, is this bound in philosophy? Is it also bound up in re like religion? Like what's, what's going on in his mind then? There does seem to have been a full-scale um, swallowing of the ideas of John Locke, but he, for, for different reasons, and partly, in fact, because of his father's fate and his father's brush with imperial authority, there does seem to be a sort of heightened sensitivity to overreach on the government's part, as well as a conviction that the ordinary man should be heard, that everyone should have a voice in his government. Hmm. And that entailed, the, the other side of that coin was, a certain allergy to inherited privilege, which is interesting mm -hmm. for someone who bore the same name as his father and who grew mm -hmm. up in a very beautiful home fronting Boston's Harbor with something of a, you know, of a very substantial fortune, um, which he will lose, I should add. But there, there does seem to have been this very early, early commitment to an equality of voices and an equality of opportunity. And even in the 1740s, before Adams really kind of comes into his own in any way politically. He's writing for an independent newspaper um, under various pseudonyms. And he's and he at one point writes a series of pieces pseudonymously as a as a simple cobbler. And of course this is a simpler simple cobbler who freely quotes from Milton and Locke and Montesquieu. I mean he's a very well educated <laughs> cobbler. <laughs> no, that, that's of course with every cobbler in the Massachusetts Bay Yeah. 
But so it's pretty clearly Adams's work. But the fact that he picks a cobbler is particularly interesting because a co- Massachusetts was a Boston was a very hierarchical town. New England mm-hmm. was generally hierarchical, and a cobbler was at the very bottom of the the pile, really. So it's it's sort of an interesting choice of um, of pseudonym of of, a, of disguises, in fact, on Adams's part. So so th- that idea seems to have been really there well before British legislation sort of ignites the quarrel between colony and mother country. One of the things you've mentioned um, is that he does, you know, spend some he, – he, he, of course, come, he's not common stock. I mean he comes from privilege. But that he does spend some time in the streets of Boston. So he, I guess he has a kind of familiarity in that way. Is that how he comes to have an affection for and admiration for the, the common person, I guess? I don't know if there's cause and effect there, but I do think that it it turns out to be a tremendous political asset for him. Hmm. It's very rare to have someone – I mean this question was asked for many years and it's no longer particularly fashionable, but how did high and low get connected in the course of the revolution? And Adams was one of those people who would have been familiar to and comfortable with the baker in the street, the cobbler in the street, as well as the – Harvard-educated merchant, as well as the merchant elite in town. That was a fairly rare ability to be able to work both ends of that spectrum. He spends some of that time, a couple of those years, attempting to collect taxes. He accepts a he accepts yeah. a position as tax collector for the town of Boston. And in that capacity, he certainly would have met more people in the streets, more people who were having trouble, obviously, finding the money to pay their taxes. And some of his popularity perhaps may be written down to the fact that he was a very indulgent collector of taxes, <laughs> uh, runs up a, a terrific debt in attempting to collect taxes for which the town of Boston will attempt to, to prosecute him later because he was so um, little gifted for, for collection of any kind. But it again um, familiarizes him with and endears him to the people on the street. I want to come back to what you said a moment ago, describing him as temperamentally modest. Because I wanted to get a sense of where you think that might come from. I guess I'm interested in his sense of morality. I mean, one of the things you mentioned is that he he supports this ban on theaters in Boston. Was he was he a prude? What was his you know religious? sensibilities and how much did that play into the way he shrugged off credit i guess i'm not convinced by the way that the ban on theaters in boston which is not in the book is adams yeah. um it's a pseudonymous effort later and many people assumed it was adams because it was it was consistent with his ideas hmm. but but i have no proof in fact that that was he the modesty i think falls out very much from his whole conception of the selfless public servant, the person who, which is how he felt government should be administered by people who actually put the common wheel ahead of their own self-interest. And yes, I think to a large extent that falls out of a religious probity on his part. Um, It's certainly evidenced in things like his clashes with someone like John Hancock, who was a very, who was of a very different school. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, but he commits it to the page over and over again, this idea that government exists for the sake of the people. And as a friend later, after Adams's death distilled Adams's philosophy, it was essentially two very simple principles. One was that the people should have much and government should have little, as opposed to the other way around, which was how things seemed to him constituted in Boston before the revolution. And that wealth and privilege should step aside and make room for genius and industry. He really felt very strongly that education should be available to all. And he very clearly said boys as well as girls and that opportunity should be available to all. So, so that was really where that was really sort of the nut of the philosophy. Stacey Schiff, her book is called The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. One of the things that you can count on from KUBR is that we've got your back when it comes to reporting the news. And one of the things that KUBR counts on to keep it all going? Contributions from listeners. One way that you can help is to donate a vehicle that you no longer need. 
It's free, it's easy to do, and it could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. The process is simple. Learn more and get started today at KUER.org slash vehicle. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. The writer Stacey Schiff is with us today. She's written about Cleopatra, about Benjamin Franklin, the Salem witch trials. Her latest is about Samuel Adams, who she says supplied the moral backbone for the American Revolution. Adams worked out this campaign of resistance, and he managed to mostly stay out of sight. But she says Adams' absence from the story can actually tell us a lot. The book is called The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams. What was he like? What was his personality like? I mean, you've talked about, you know, your admiration and affection, of course, for him. But was he – I mean, one of the things – aside from this, the question of his remarkable integrity, his cousin – John Adams described him as obliging and having engaging manners. And so, so I don't know. I have the sense of like he could be seen as a, a, a curmudgeon, but he was, was he charming? What do we know about that? I went into it with the curmudgeonly conviction. Yeah, me too. Well as, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's insofar as we think about him at all, I think we think spoil sport of some kind. Huh. Or we think hot-headed fanatic, which I'm not, you know, firebrand. I think that was sort of how I, assume, I think that was actually how I wrote him off in my Franklin book, essentially, was, you know, sort of this person who who was just um, extremely impassioned. If you if you look both at his correspondence, I mean, what remains of his correspondence, and at the descriptions of contemporaries, you really come around to a very different, very different man. And And I think John Adams says it best when he says that, his cousin was a man of obliging manners and exquisite humanity and deep erudition and just tremendous integrity. He comes off over and over again as someone who's very sweet-tempered, someone who's very decorous, a little formal, if anything, at times, very affable, very sweet with children, and hugely respected by the townspeople of Boston. You know, Further tribute, I think, to those characteristics, but to the point where since he's essentially living on air and is penniless for most of these years, mm. neighbors are constantly doing things like rebuilding his barn when it falls into disrepair for him. <laughs> right. I mean, there's a real, right. know, there's a real sense. And, and there's a wonderful letter in the, in the Adams archive in which someone who does not seem to be a close friend, someone whose name is nowhere else in the archive. There's no other letter from this person set, writes him when Adams is in Philadelphia during the war and says, I stopped by your house and I took it upon myself to just cart off all your remaining papers so that, you know, those vile predators, the the redcoats in Boston, couldn't get their hands on what they would so sorely like to get their hands on. And that just seems to have been the kind of, just speaks so much to the respect with which he seemed to have been viewed at the time. Let's talk about James Otis. I guess he was um, kind of a mentor figure to Samuel Adams. What influence does does Otis have on Adam's own sort of political disposition? I think you're right. I think insofar as there is a mentor, it's certainly Otis. Otis is a few years younger, actually, than Adams, also um, in possession of two Harvard degrees, very brilliant orator and a very brilliant lawyer, had already himself argued one case against the crown in a public forum and in a very spectacular way, was a pyrotechnic speaker and was generally the person to whom difficult cases were sent. And he and Adams become fairly close in the 1760s, and Adams becomes a sort of wingman and ghostwriter to James Otis, who in the course of the next couple of years will become a little bit un uh, unstable in his mind. It's unclear what of what he was suffering, but there's clearly some sort of mental disorder at work. He may have been manic depressive. He tended to begin to vacillate in his political opinions so that one day he might, he would have a Tory day and the next day he might have a Whig day and then he might have a Tory yeah. day. One day he was for the Stamp Act and the next day he would be against it and will slowly devolve over the, over the following years into some kind of pretty serious illness. Adams will be at his side through these early years, clearly learn at his side, and then end up pretty much having to kind of clean up the mess behind James Otis in some ways and then fold him into committees on which Otis can do the least possible damage, essentially. But he, he's trying very hard. There's a, there's a very poignant letter in the archives to a mutual friend in which 
Adams essentially says, you know, it brings tears to my eyes to do this, but we really have to, you know, we basically have to cover for this person whom we love so dearly. Um, so it's someone at whose side he learns a great deal and whose suspicions of the crown and opposition to the crown Adams shares early on, but where Adams is ferocious and, and resolute and dauntless, Otis becomes a little bit of a political weather vane. So at some point, this idea of redress shifts to resistance, then becomes rebellion. Do we know the moment of turning for Samuel Adams? I mean, he never says what that moment was, I don't think. Um, but but what is the moment when it becomes settled in his own mind that we should be an independent group of people? It's such a great question. And I should have said, by the way, about James Otis, that Otis is for years in the minds of crown officials, the great incendiary. And by sort of 1768, Adams is the great incendiary. And that is the year which, when traditionally people have assumed Adams turned his mind to independence, that 1768, the year when he really becomes more eminent than Otis, when for the first time British troops occupy Boston, is the year that Adams resolves that the colonies need to be, need some kind of rupture with the, with the mother country. That is nowhere on paper. And if you read Adams in the years that follow, it still seems to me as if he's insisting on a return to conditions prior to these attempts at legislation. He's still not insisting on any kind of independence. He uses the word, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a loaded word, and it's a little bit hard to determine any of this because no one really wanted to, it was a third rail, no one wanted to use that word. And at one point, I think I went through and looked in, John Jay, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, no one is willing to say we think independence is in order until very close to 1775. Um, But in in Adams's case, he he uses the, the term independence only when he talks about something from which parliament, from which the crown should shy. You know, if they're not careful, this is what's going to happen, as opposed to something to which the colonies should themselves aspire. And the first time he really sort of actively embraces independence is the morning after Lexington. So really quite late in the game when he feels, I mean, his feeling is that independence should have been declared the minute, the minute bullets were discharged. Hmm. Um, and that if in fact he's very, that, that year or year and a little bit between Lexington and Concord and the declaration is a very painful year for him because he just can't figure out what, why this is taking so, so much time. And his feeling in retrospect, will have been, his feeling in July of 1776, is that if only independence had been declared sooner, Canada would have joined the other colonies in resistance to the crown. So he feels in a funny way as if something has been wasted in that year of tarrying. But there's nothing in the earlier years to indicate that he was anywhere near as radical in his thinking. Hmm. And then he comes to craft what you describe as this campaign of civil resistance, um, which means, of course, the the speeches and the boycotts. He's a terrific recruiter, apparently. And then these these meetings that he creates, which you you say you you talk about it as this this modern invention, this astonishingly astonishingly modern invention that he creates out of whole cloth. So, what do you mean by that? Is this a is this a plan that he draws out? Um, to, you know, just how set, how does he lay it out? Does, is, is this an actual plan or does it, is it just circumstantial? Like, how does it work? If you, if you know. I so wish I had a roadmap to his thinking in that case. And it's funny that you should ask that because he makes very clear that he's not a planner and he's very strategic, but he's not a planner, which is an odd contradiction. Um, what he does have is an uncanny political instinct. And what he does manage to pull off is, to my mind, one of the most successful campaigns of civil resistance in history. So, I mean, th- I mean, this is a protest movement, and he's figuring out along yeah. the way, in a very, it seems to me, organic way, what is in order and what can actually successfully um, be mounted. He isn't always correct, and sometimes it will take him several attempts, obviously, to get some of these things to happen. But if you look at, you know, sort of the Bible of civil resistance as it's written today, 
every single one of the boxes is a box that Adams checks. I mean, the economic pressure that he brings, mm-hmm. the ability to fold women and, and children into the whole protest movement. It's extraordinary. And ultimately, the his committees of correspondence, which in a very um, prescient way is like an electrical wiring of one colony to the next, to the next, to the next, which allows outrage to spread like wildfire in the wake of the intolerable, whatever, the coercive acts. So in each of those, it's almost as if there's an instinctive sense of what the population can stand and what they're capable of. In a couple of these cases, there are misfires. He sometimes calls for boycotts at a time when no one else is interested in boycott. Mm-hmm. Um, he's sometimes, I mean, in the wake of the Boston Massacre, for example, the Boston Massacre is in March of 1770. For the next two and a half years, really no one is interested in discussing any of this. They just really want for life and business to go back to normal. And Adams is continually trying to stir up some kind of outrage without any results whatsoever. Um, and he's pretty much abandoned by the rest of his colleagues through that moment. So a lot of this is just this kind of dauntless um, emphasis on things. And then every once in a while, and in the case of the committees of correspondence, with an assist from the crown who so often misstep, he manages to get yet another effort off the ground. And the committees of correspondence are a perfect example where he had had this idea earlier that if only the towns of, of Massachusetts, then the towns of New England, and ultimately the towns in the other colonies could communicate with each other, could broadcast the rights and liberties of American subjects, as well as their own sense of when those liberties were in any way encroached upon, then they could all be knit together. He has that idea early on. He tries to he tries to involve Rhode Island with it early. He tries to send it to Virginia early, but only when essentially word comes from London that that knew that Massachusetts judges are about to be paid by the crown and not by the people of Massachusetts, does he get any traction because because the people are so outraged by this new encroachment of their liberties or what they seem what they sense to be an additional encroachment of, of liberties. So he seems to have had these ideas um, often well before he's able to enact them, but there's an uncanny instinct there when the moment is right. Um, to move quickly. Stacy Schiff, her new book is The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams. We'll take another break, come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. KUER is available via radio through a network of transmitters and translators across Utah. We are also available to you beyond the dial. Stream us on your computer, put us in your pocket with the KUER mobile app, subscribe to our podcasts, and listen to us at home on your smart speaker. Use our station finder for your nearest signal and explore more ways to stay connected to NPR Utah at KUER.org slash listen. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Back now to our conversation with the writer Stacy Schiff. We're talking about her book, The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams. What do you make of the, I guess, this question of just how much Adams was kind of exploiting the sentiments of the common folk? There's a – in a review of your book, the New York Times mentioned something the late historian Pauline Mayer believed about Samuel Adams that this idea that he was using these techniques of mass manipulation she thought that was that was a myth and I just wondered where do, where do you come down on all of that I think I'm a little bit less cynical on that because he's so as I said his insistence is always his his sympathy is always for the common man his insist, insistence is always on the voice of the common man being heard I don't feel like he's manipulating the common man to enact something that he alone sees. I do think he's very often manipulating. I mean, let me mm, make that mm-hmm. perfectly clear. And, yeah. I, and I guess, yeah. you know, a perfect example of that would be something like the meeting just after the Boston, after the destruction of the tea in Boston Harbor. Um, Take us through that story because I think this is the per- – because when we talk about the how good he was at getting – 
um, leaving people who are opposed to this idea out of the discussion. Um, it's a, This is a great sort of illustration of that. Can Take us through this moment. So essentially, the Tea Act in 1773 is yet another attempt to not so much raise revenue in this case, but just to make clear that parliament, parliamentary sovereignty extends to the colonies. And this is an issue that it's obviously been unresolved since the Sugar Act in 1764. So tea is headed to several American colonies, but the understanding in Boston, and Adams is very um, vocal about this, is that to drink that tea is essentially to lose the dispute that's been going on for a decade now is essentially to accept Parliament's sovereignty over the colonies. So it's a sort of, Mm. it's a poison pill that, that, that they're being asked to swallow. And to Adams's mind, the tea must be rejected. He's obviously not anywhere, not alone in that in any way. And his statement on the subject is that he, as he can't trust the private virtue of his fellow citizens in not drinking the tea, he prefers to trust to their <laughs> public virtue in rejecting the tea. Yeah. And he and a number of others, and again, this is an example of Adams working very much by committee, are at the center of a series of meetings that are held, which become more and more fraught as the deadline as the clock ticks toward the date by which the tea must either be confiscated by um, by the government or no one knows what to do with it. it will not be the town will not allow it to be unloaded and it's sitting at the wharf in Boston. Yeah. So Adams and a number of others are instrumental in these meetings at which essentially everyone is calling out their ideas of what they think should happen to the tea and where votes are being cast as to what the fate of the tea should be. At the last of these, which is to say on the day when the where the expiration is about to near at midnight, a final request is sent to Thomas Hutchinson, then the royal governor at his country home, to please issue a special permit to allow the tea to be returned without pay, without any duty paid to London. And that's a request that Thomas Hutchinson, never for a minute suspecting that anything is really afoot, will deny. And when the owner of the ship, the first ship to have docked, comes back into the meeting at the Old South with Thomas Hutchinson's response, Adams will say, Nothing more can be done clearly than to save the country or something along those lines. And shortly thereafter, although not because of that one sentence, a small group of men will melt away from the meeting and will venture down to the wharf. A group, a very lightly disguised group of 30 or 40 men mount the ships, haul up the chests of tea from the holds, chop the crates open and empty crates and tea into the harbor before an audience of several thousand, if not 7,000, the numbers are very numbers are very loose on that evening, um, Bostonians, a group which does not include Samuel Adams and John Hancock, who are themselves very conspicuously still back at the Old South Meeting House. Yeah. Um, so this is obviously, and, and, and more to the point I should add, there are several thousand Bostonians at the wharf. The next day, no one has seen a thing. No one can possibly name a name. Um, no one has any idea who has been responsible for this destruction. And Adams, in the days that follow, will turn this assault, basically, on private property into a noble defense of American liberties, as he sees it. It has all been conducted, as he puts it, with decency and unanimity and spirit, which is you know, what, an interesting take on an act of clear vandalism. Um, but that's a moment where, yes, he's he and his peers are orchestrating the town, but everyone is very is largely on the same page at this point. Not everyone is on the same page later about whether the East India Company should be reimbursed for its losses. But at that moment, everyone is of the same mind, nearly everyone is of, is of the same mind, that the tea simply cannot be accepted by the town. And Adams is whipping up that sentiment into some kind of action. Where he is in the planning of the destruction, we will never know. We know he's not at the wharf. And we do know from the few people who were deposed in London in the in the weeks afterward that he is the prime mover at the meetings themselves. We do know that he um, – I think he used – I think you described them as lowball tactics. How did he justify those and how far did he go? Well, just to, just to – stay with the Tea Party. Here's a perfect example. As I said, not everyone was on the same page as to whether this had been a glorious moment or whether this had been an inglorious moment. And a meeting is is held um, shortly thereafter about whether or not the town should vote to reimburse the East India Company for what they have cost them in dumping this 10,000 or so, 9,000 pounds of tea into the harbor. 
one of the staunch defenders of the East India Company is a lawyer who, a very well-spoken lawyer, who's very firm in his conviction that the town needs to make that recompense. And Adams has him artfully um, returned to his town. He was from Taunton, Massachusetts, by a good friend, so that that particular lawyer who was steadfast in his insistence that the town reimburse the East India Company would not be present when Adams then very (laughs) shrewdly turns the vote, not into one about reimbursing the East India Company, but into one as to whether there should be a Continental Congress in Philadelphia to discuss what's just happened. So, you know, there's a little, there's a lot of manipulation in a move Mm -hmm. like that. There is rarely a loophole through which he fails to leap. There's a, there's a lot of that kind of manipulation behind the scenes. It's not always pretty. I mean, there's clearly a lot of arm twisting. Uh-huh. We have some evidence of, you know, some of the arm twisting. Economic pressure is often applied to people who don't want to go along with boycotts and pickets. And he doesn't seem to have shied in any way from doing that. And there's a lot of... Um, in his writing, there's a lot of just very artful kind of taking something to the logical extreme to the point of absurdity. In other words, if if Parliament insists that it should tax the colonies, Adams will argue, well, has anyone noticed that the form of government is identical in the colonies as in the mother country? So doesn't it make as much sense that the colonies tax the mother country as that they tax hmm. us? So he's a master of that kind of illogic as well. You mentioned the the uh, loyalist Governor Thomas Hutchinson, um, and you talked about how you were quite fond of him. That he was an admirable person. He, you, you don't put him in the um, villain category in any way. Uh, in fact, you said I think you said at some point that your heart was sort of with him. He's the the chief antagonist to to, to Adams in many ways. Um, Talk a little bit about their relationship. It's almost this kind of counter relationship in some way. Yeah, and I and I think Hutchinson is sort of the antihero of the book. Um, the two of them have everything in common. I mean, they're like two political figures today who have precisely the same origins and precisely the same education that come down on diametrically different sides of an issue. So they're both fifth generation sons of Massachusetts. They're both educated at the best schools. They have the same education. And Hutchinson is part of this um, is by contrast part of this very tight intermarried um, merchant elite. Um, I guess the easiest way to indicate Hutchinson's influence is to say that of the six people who buy the tea act will be allowed would have been allowed to sell East India Company tea had it landed in Boston. Two were Thomas Hutchinson's sons, and two were his friends, and two were his relatives. So he has a very tight hold on power, and in addition to that. He has a kind of bouquet of titles. During all of these years, Thomas Hutchinson is either lieutenant governor or acting governor or ultimately royal governor. He's also chief justice. He's judge of the probate. He's a member of the council. He, he, the titles just gravitate to him in a way that from a very early point clearly irritates not just Samuel Adams, but also John Adams and also Otis and also James Warren. Most of the pe- Most of the players in this and these years seem to have a deep-seated antipathy to Thomas Hutchinson, which which is deeply unfair, which is hard to under, not difficult to understand given how eminent and ubiquitous Hutchinson is, but difficult to understand because he is really at heart an immensely dutiful and diligent public servant. He's beyond reproach. He's in no way corrupt. He's a man who's desperately trying to do the right thing. He too... Um, in the months leading up to the Stamp Act, will speak out against the Stamp Act. But because he is acting, because he is Lieutenant Governor at the time, he can't really do it in a very vocal fashion. But he also believes that the Stamp Act is, in his words, taxation without representation. Um, His heart is really in the colonies. He really wants to do what's best for for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But he just doesn't see and can't hear Samuel Adams's points or this kind of new atmosphere of ideas that are beginning, that's beginning to form around him. He's utterly deaf really to what's going on in in the Boston air. And he's holding very tight to a world which is quickly becoming antiquated, but he doesn't see it and he can't see it in any way. So it's, it's a sort of profoundly unsettling thing, I think, um, 
to see Hutchinson suffering like this, where he's when he's trying so hard to do the right thing, he, he's very condescending toward, mm. especially Samuel Adams, um, whom he who, whom he thinks of as a sort of he, whom he identifies with the rabble. Hutchinson yeah. is often writing about people who sort of have the appearance of men or, you know, assemblies of Tom, Dicks, and Harrys, as he calls them, which are Adams's town meetings. And that condescension, I think, backfires because Adams, both Adams' cousins, feel it very deeply. At, Hutchinson makes it very clear. And he really does comport himself as a bit of an aristocrat, which rubs almost everyone in the, in the faction in the Adams camp the wrong way. But but I say that with with kindness because you can see Hutchinson at each juncture, really trying to do the right thing, really wondering where where solid ground is, really wondering how to make some kind of compromise that will make everyone happy. And only after in those sort of quiet years I mentioned after the Boston massacre, does he think he's found it? He finally thinks he's de- he's detached Adams's friends from Adams, and he, and he can see that the town is quieter than it's been for years, and he feels that finally he's home free. And that's mm-hmm. between 1770 and 1772, and then, of course, arrives the, the Tea Act. Yeah. There's this moment uh, that you write about. I wanted to um, ask you about this time just it's after uh, Samuel Adams is elected to the Massachusetts House, and he arranges for the construction of a, a public gallery, something that went up in just a matter of days. Um, talk a little bit ab- about this and the effect. What was what was Adams going for here? Oh, I'm so glad you noticed that. It's one of it, I think it's so it's so incredibly telling. It's one of his first acts on entering the Massachusetts House. He and friends arrange for um, a gallery to be very speedily constructed, in which, as he sees it, the constituents can look down upon their elected officials and hear what they're hear what government actually consists of and hear them in action. And his feeling was that. Um, government should be held accountable and that the people should neither be above the government should not, neither be above nor below the people that they should everyone should be on equal footing it's something which immediately rubs the then royal governor the wrong way because as he sees it adams has turned the house of representatives into theater he can't understand what these people what this these ill dressed masses are doing in the house of representatives and it's worse when the governor discovers that um, not only is the public invited to these assemblies but that Adams often hands out private invitations to friends to people the gallery. So there's really a, a sort of um, a great dissatisfaction on the part of the government that Adams has done this because all the mystification, all the mystery of the house falls away. And and also with his um, entering the house at that point, the house begins to speak with a much steelier voice um, than it had previously done. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the, the end of his life. The, which you write that he had outlived himself. What, what do you mean by that? In several ways. First of all, I, th- I think we forget that the men who the men who make the revolution are not the men who make the country, that there are two separate yeah, entities yeah. here. Mm-hmm. And John Adams is very clear about this when he talks about um, the revolution in thinking, which preceded the revolution in fighting. And that revolution in thinking is Samuel Adams's revolution. Mm-hmm. And he's not mm-hmm. really present through that second that second part. But he's outlived himself, to my mind, in a couple of ways. First of all, he is older than many of his confederates. He's significantly older than, for example, Thomas Jefferson. And he's very much looking back after the revolution, hoping for, as I said, a a restoration of some of these earlier, simpler Mm -hmm. times when the country is hurtling toward a much more complex capitalistic future. So it's it's really not, this this is not exactly what he'd intended. And he's referred to, Throughout through Boston, where he's still very much respected by many, and is a source of some dissatisfaction to others, as that sort of great unspotted lump of patriotism. I mean, he's someone who everyone knows has put everything on the line, who's nearly martyred himself for the sake of the country, but who is somehow a relic of the past already. He never holds federal office. And he's very much out of step with the Federalists and with the temperature of the republic he helps to found. What does it mean that he wanted to put down Shay's rebellion? Where, how does that work in in the way he's thinking? It's an interesting one because it tells you 
I think everything you need to know about how he felt about public protest. The understanding should have been that, oh, oh, here comes, you know, another moment of um, of unrest. Here comes another violent protest against government. Adams, who had always um, facilitated, if not organized those things, should have been on the side of the protesters. Yeah. And in fact, there was a very clear red line there for the following reason. He felt there was a he felt there was an entire world of difference between um, protesting against a government that is arbitrarily imposed on you and protesting against a government that is democratically elected by you. And for the second, there is, there is all kinds of recourse, and that's called elections. And so he was deeply, deeply upset by um, what had happened and suggested actually that the protesters um, be severely prosecuted. So you, you've talked about this kind of tenacity that he has to keep to keep these colonists focused on this idea of of resistance and rebellion and that and i wonder if you it's a counterfactual that probably there's no point to it in some ways but i wonder if you think without adams what shape would this moment of resistance that turned to rebellion what what could it have taken do you think um it's a counterfactual but it but 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 I'll you know let me indulge you. Um, okay, I, I think it you know if you look at the columns and columns and columns of writing of Samuel Adams, and we're talking you know he's writing under at least thirty pseudonyms. He's writing constantly <laughs> yeah. in the Boston Gazette and the Boston Evening Post. It's, he's tireless. When you look at those pages and pages of um, of Adams on um, whatever subject in you know resist in resisting the overreach of of Parliament. You see that next to it, there's another article on a not dissimilar point. I mean, there's, he's by no means writing alone. And those, those miles of column inches are accompanied by other miles of column inches by other people who are saying very much the same thing. So, and, and, and obviously that sentiment is shared by others in other colonies. It's, it's, it's somewhat amusing to me that people in other colonies were then referred to affectionately as the Samuel Adams of Georgia or the Samuel Adams of, New of Rhode Island or the Samuel Adams of, of Pennsylvania. So the sentiment is certainly there and it's really burbling up. I, I think the language of it is in a large part Adams's and the velocity with which the revolution, by which the revolution comes about and then takes off is largely due to Adams. Um, but I don't, you know, I would not say that it is one man's revolution or one man's doing by any stretch. Stacey Schiff, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Stacey Schiff, her book is The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at Radio West. We had help this week from our resident actor, April Fossen. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.